This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Howard by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. Co-host is Warren Finance Minister Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run, and the sixth edition is out in bookstores wherever they are sold, so please go get a copy. Please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. Professor, we're in the heart of earnings season. We are getting a lot more data, some more economic data. I know you're watching all of this uh, impact on the Fed coming up next week. How are you digesting all that's coming out? Yeah, and the Fed coming up next week is the big deal. Um, markets predicting 25, I think 25. If it goes 50, it'll be a disaster for the markets, over a thousand point decline on the Dow. Um, but if it comes in 25, that's not the end of the story. It's, uh, how he phrases it afterwards. Um, not only the statement, but his, uh, press conference. Uh, one, does he concede that he has seen much progress on battling inflation. Will he stay, say we still have more to do? And how does he say it? Much more to do, or does he emphasize we are near the end of our tightening cycle? Um, if he says we have much more to do, we're not near the end, um, that will not be good for the markets. Um, uh, the markets want it to be the end or very near the end. And, um, uh, they want the Fed to quote, get it. Uh, and, um, and, and recognize that inflation basically has been, uh, stopped, uh, and wage gains are necessary just to clear those markets as a structural issue and a catch up issue, uh, not an issue the Fed, uh, should fight at this point. Um, at the same time, uh, I am still amazed at jobless claims, again, falling again. Real economic data this week has been mixed. Um, the GDP report was nowhere near as strong as the big figure. A lot of it was inventory buildup. A lot of it was a trade, uh, a turnaround. Um, domestic demand, and particularly consumption, was actually quite weak, and most uh, economists are actually are downgrading their forecast for first quarter uh, GDP in into uh, uh, the one uh, one or one plus area. Um, so I, 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 I uh, certainly it's not it's it's not terribly weak data, but it, it is not a terribly strong data. Um, we also know that, of course, um, after the, the Fed announces we are going to get the employment report, um, and that's that's going to be important, but it'll be after the Fed actually gives its signal. So the, the, the Fed is the big tone. On earnings, mixed, not terrible. We had about 20% so far. 70% are still beating their averages, which is, you know, historically, you know, pretty close to the average. Um, we, of course, had a huge miss on Intel, uh, and that is really, uh, showing the weakness uh, for the chip makers, but, uh, the rest of it, fourth quarter is not terrible. There is guidance that is, uh, on the weakish side, maybe defensively, um, uh, men maybe worry about recession. Um, the, the 10 year, you know, staying at, uh, it's, it's 350 area. If the Fed hikes the funds rate, into the five zone, in other words, if he claims, you know, the three more hikes. And by the way, that's what Fed funds futures are, quarter point in each of the next three meetings and then stop. Um, if he goes that far, it will be at or the biggest inversion that we've seen in the term structure 
um, which is a certainly harbinger of a recession going forward. So, uh, you know, basically the Fed, uh, there's a, there's a standoff with, um, will the Fed get it? Will they over tighten? Uh, earnings themselves are not coming in badly. Um, certainly not the gangbusters we saw in, uh, in 2021 and early 2022. Now, part of your view on inflation has been the money supply. You've talked a lot about that. We got the latest money supply figures. Um, let's talk about your magic number of 5% and what you want it growing at and what it actually came in at. Uh, right. and, and why is the and Fed so that Yeah, that's very important. And last Tuesday, we did get the money supply for December. And the final news is not good. The money supply contracted in the year 2022 by the most since the Great Depression of the 1930s. The most since the Great Depression of the 1930s. Um, I uh, had some hope of moderation, but when the data came in, the money supply drop from November to December actually exceeded any other monthly drop in 2022. We are not heading in the right direction. We are restricting liquidity far too much. And yes, in fact, the two signs that I worry about, record contraction in liquidity and the biggest inversion in the term structure, if the Fed doesn't pivot very soon, it seems to me very hard to avoid a recession in the second half of 2023 and early 2024. And do you have a sense on how much you think unemployment goes up? Because we still haven't seen it. Is it you're, you're holding hope that productivity could off come it, but uh, the longer the Fed keeps this, the, the, the harder that becomes. But do you have a sense where, where you think unemployment heads this year? Um. I think un- unemployment is probably headed for 4%. Um, yes, I do hope that productivity growth can rebound. That could keep profits higher, inflation lower, and maintain corporate profits. I think the current guidance of 225 is very conservative, actually, even though it is up from what uh what we've seen in 2022 uh so the 2023 uh numbers are are certainly up but i think that they actually are are very conservatively a uh, position because i think work uh firms are going to get rid of a lot of workers of low product productivity that could maintain these figures so um you know if we you know if if we put a 20 pe which I think is the new long-term normal on 225, you know, we get, uh, what, 4,500 for the S&P. That's a good 10% gain from the current uh, data. Um, that does predict that we're not going to have a severe recession, and it does uh, predict that we're going to have some productivity um, pull up, um, bounce back, um, and both of those could happen. But both of those, I think, depend on the, on the, on the, on the Fed a pivot. So, um, the market is surprising us. As I said, it would everyone's position bearishly. January has been very, very good. Um, but again, I think we need signs that the Fed is getting it and seeing the low inflation and the dangers of waiting too long. Well, you're certainly doing your part to make them aware. Uh, well, we appreciate all your comments. Let's uh, look into next week and see how it goes. Looking forward to your comments next week. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Thanks, Professor. We're going to turn our conversation to our guest for the remainder of the program. We have Peter Lazaroff, who's the CIO of PlanCore, uh, St. Louis-based RIA. Peter is also an author of a great book, Making Money Simple. Peter, welcome to Behind the Markets. Jeremy, thank you so much for having me. Love the show. Let's. Uh, how are we going to make money simple? Tell us about yourself. Tell us about your background uh, that got you to, to focus on your book and, and what you do at, at PlanCore. Sure. Well, I have been working at an independent 
RIA for the last 15 years, um, eight of which, roughly eight of which have been at PlanCorp, which, as you mentioned, is based in St. Louis, but we have a couple different offices across the country. We serve clients in 44 states, overseeing, I believe, about $6 billion in client assets. And my role as CIO is both to set investment policy, obviously, and, and do some of that due diligence. But I think the role of CIO has really evolved over time to be one where you're not just in focus, you're not just focusing on the investments, but you're focused on the investing experience for clients. And so a lot of that comes with communication. So I have a podcast, The Long-Term Investor. You can see that at thelongterminvestor.com. And I wrote the book, Making Money Simple. And I'm pleased to say that listeners today, um, I have a couple extra boxes here at my home office that I'm going to share with you all. If you want to go to peterlazaroff.com slash free book, I have 250 copies. When they're gone, they're gone. I'll send you a note <laughs> once they're gone. But ultimately, I think, you know, stuff like writing a book and, and Jeremy, obviously, you have a lot of experience here having having written stocks for the long run um, and worked on that for most of your career, to my understanding. That's what that, it is. Yeah, it just helps you clarify your thoughts when you're when you're writing or when you're speaking. And I think over time, I've come to learn that people don't just like to read, they like to listen, which is why there's a podcast now and there's a YouTube channel. There's so many different modes of communication. But at the end of the day, while I spend a lot of time communicating, I do really love diving deep on portfolio construction. I really do like the dynamics of group decision making. And at the end of the day, we're just trying to help clients make good choices with their money and investments are a vehicle for that. The financial planning piece is also enormous. And I think Making Money Simple, the book, tries to capture all of those pieces that are really important. I already got the first text that somebody's signing up for a copy. Um, so Making Money Simple, PeterLazaroff.com slash free book. Uh, you get that uh, there. So Peter, you heard a little bit from the professor's view on the markets, the economy. Uh, how when you when you and you talk about trying to help guide your clients through the investment experience, what are they saying right now? Is their phones ringing with the bear markets last year? Stocks and bonds terrible. How are you? What what are you telling people? Is now a good time? Well, let me start with you know when the when the bear market when we were down more than twenty percent, I felt like our average client was a lot more calm than in previous downturns that I've experienced dating back to 2007. And I don't have a great reason for that other than maybe we just lived through 2020. And so people hear the message of stay the course. All crises are uniquely scary and they're unique in their own ways, but they all eventually end. And so you can make or lose a lot of money with poor behavior in a bear market. But I would say the, the group that was perhaps most nervous were those who were substantially older, largely because their bonds fell by so much. By so much, and so I, I think you know, the Barclays Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Index ended the year down thirteen percent. So worst year for bonds ever. We had a negative five year return on bonds for the first time ever. And so whether you were ninety percent stocks or ninety percent bonds, you had a bad year in the market. And so naturally, kind of going back to your question of people are getting their quarterly statements. And if you're a young professional and you got a bonus or, you know, you're sitting on a bunch of cash for whatever reason, you're wondering, is now a good time to invest? Because normally that that stock bond split is going to define a lot of your investment experience, how good or bad it was, but it was bad for everybody. And when I talk to people, is now a good time to invest? First of all, and you know this, <laughs> again, author of Stocks for the Long Run, if your time horizon's 20 years, it's always a good time to invest, always. In the next year, I feel like my job is really about setting expectations. And when I look at historical bear market declines and recoveries, I feel like that's a nice starting point for expectations because you don't have to look at history and assume everything will perfectly align with it. But in general, bear markets and bull markets, they tend to happen with a similar magnitude and frequency as they have in the past. And if I look at the average bear market, the length of the downturn in the average bear market is 12 months long with a max decline of 30%. Now, when that bear market is tied to a recession, the average bear market, the length of the downturn is down 18% with a max decline of down 37%, whereas the average non-recessionary bear market is takes seven months to hit the bottom with a max decline of 24%. And so as you were talking 
uh, with Professor Siegel earlier about where we are in the cycle. And I think setting expectations, nobody knows what's going to happen in the next 12 months. However, we are about, uh, let's say, 13 months into this thing. If we were to make a new low, so to speak, if we're already on our way to recovery, I think that means it's because there wasn't a recession. And all that said, I, when I talk to clients today, I say, hey, like it, just looking at the leading indicators, they're pointing to a little bit more economic weakness, but it's difficult and arguably premature to determine whether the labor market can maintain its relative strength. And so I personally have felt that we will see a recession. Does that change my investment strategy? Not necessarily. Um, the leading indicators, you know, they're kind of at levels where historically they are really only at these levels when we're already in a recession. And if that's the case, so be it. Um, we can look at U.S. stock performance during the first half of recessions, the second half of recessions, and then the same in expansions and see that historically, the returns in the second half of recessions have been quite good. So all these things are to encompass, you know, the best plan of action with your investments more often than not is to do nothing, to stick with the plan. If you don't have a plan, well, I would look to your plan before your portfolio to make a change given if is now a good time to invest. You can't really know without goals, objectives, and a better understanding of the whole picture. But over the next 12 months, you know, I think it's reasonable to expect that we might have, uh, we might test the lows. And if that happens, the good news is that we're already pretty far into this thing if that happens. And maybe we look out 12 months from now and look pretty happy. You look at the returns, you know, 12 months out, three months, three years out, five years out from a recession, they historically are really, really good. So yeah, long-winded way of saying, if your time horizon is long, yes, it's yeah. always a good time to invest. For the next year, you know, if we test a low, I think that's good to keep in mind so that you don't panic if it happens and the leading indicators are pointing to a recession. Um, and that means, you know, typically it would take a little bit longer for us to both reach the eventual low and have the uh, recovery to the new high. Yeah, the, a lot of great opening there, Peter. And and I'll just add on to that. You know, in one of the, the points, uh, I've been talking a lot this, this, this week. I did about 13 different presentations on the book, uh, Traveling Around Miami. And we, we talked, you know, when you look at the, the, the bear markets and stocks and bonds, you talked about this was one of the first times they declined together for the last, uh, sets of periods. Um, you know, stocks, the longest time stocks went down after inflation was 17 years in our data, in, in sort of stocks for long run data, it was a 17 year period. Bonds had a 35 year period where the returns were negative, partly because inflation in the 70s and 80s was 7%. And so after inflation, we measure returns after inflation, you had a very long time period. Now, going back then, you didn't have tips bonds, sort of inflation protected bonds, which are now a new anchor, you say a risk-free type of the ultimate, you know, protection on bonds is that inflation protection. But what do you get in that today? You get 1%, a little bit above 1%, better than where he was at negative 1% uh, to start the year uh, of, of of last year, of 2021, started the year negative over negative 1%, but those have risen considerably. How are you thinking about the the yields that you get in bonds today, what do you think they are long-term in terms of what you're, 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 you're looking at for people's portfolios? Those were been the ballast of portfolios, but they weren't. Uh, will they become the ballast again as the sort of hedge asset for people? Well, something that was interesting about the bad year in bonds last year, unlike the last time bonds had poor performance, which was the great financial crisis, that was really a credit-driven event. Whereas this time, and I think in that event, people were a little surprised with how much credit risk they had in their portfolio. This time around, the driver returns was duration, um, which is not maturity, but you know, if you're a layman and thinking about like what is duration, a, a decent proxy can be maturity if you think about that or term of the bond. And the longer the duration of the bond, the more sensitive it is to interest rates. The thing is that rising interest rates, as long as your holding period is greater than the duration of your holdings, are actually additive to returns. So you experience a lot of pain, and ultimately, now that yields are higher, you are going to see much better returns. And over the long term, I think this is always surprising to people, is how much of your bond portfolio return 
comes from the income and the reinvestment of that income and compounding and how little an impact price volatility has. And I think that, you know, as we look at this year, you know, worst worst three year period for bonds ever, first five year negative period ever. When you look at other annual times where there was a you know, the worst three year periods for bonds, the next three years average annual return, they're spectacular. Whether you're looking at the 50s or in the 80s, spectacular um, because the yields are higher and you can compound at a better rate. I do think that what's tempting for a lot of people today is to look at the losses in their bond portfolio, particularly if you own bond funds. If you're owning individual bonds, you may not realize you're at a loss, but but you certainly are if, if they got marked to market. But a lot of people are tempted to say, hey, I can earn more on my cash. Why don't I just go to cash? Or why don't I buy a three-month T-bill for 4.5%? Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I get why that intuitively might seem like a good idea. But just like the stock market, we can't predict where things are going to move. We can't predict how interest rates are going to move. And different parts of the curve will, quote unquote, win in any given year. I think times when cash or beating bonds are particularly difficult from a behavioral standpoint to tolerate because you can see how easy it is and it's guaranteed return. Whereas your bonds, you know, you just came off a bad year. Um you see that the starting yields are lower than what you could perhaps earn in a short-term T-bill. And you wonder, why am I even in these things? But here's the deal is, at some point, um, interest rates might settle a little. And in the Fed, yes, they're raising rates. And people might think, well, if they're, they are telegraphing, there are raise rates, aren't bonds going to lose more money? Well, the, the Fed is raising rates at the short-term end of the curve, whereas most people own more than just two-month, three-month, six-month, one-year treasury bills. And so uh, over time, I think those long-term yield, those longer-term yields have already priced in all these rate hikes. If inflation is stubborn and does not go down, sure, maybe there could be a little more pain in the bond market, but I would think that most of the pain has already happened and the outlook is quite good at this point. And, and generally, I think if you remember, even if rates do make another leg up on the intermediate or long-term end of the curve, as long as your holding period is greater than the duration of your portfolio, you are better off with rising interest rates than you are with falling interest rates. And so I think that's a really simple thing to keep in mind. If you don't know what the duration of your portfolio is, you can ask your advisor, you could probably look on your custodian, find out. And most people aren't going to have a duration longer than say like six or seven, unless they're aggressively in long-term bonds. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, if your time horizon's longer than that, then you're going to come out ahead, even if there's a little bit of pain on the front end. We're talking with Peter Lazaroff, who's the CIO of PlanCore, also an author of Making Money Simple. Uh, and he offered a free book for every listener, Making Money Simple, Peter Lazaroff, free book. You can get a copy. Um, Peter, uh, you know, interesting, the, the yield curve itself, um, I mean, has some really interesting facets today where you talked about the short-term yields. I mean, it... The shortest duration bonds are in the treasury market are the highest yields. You know, the 10-year is now got some of the record inversions for the last 40 years. Um, we were looking at this chart this morning. Uh, that's not a great sign for the economy. Um, it's, it's unfortunate, but it, you pick up like 120 basis points to go to one week duration instead of going to 10 year duration. What is, has that come into how you think about allocating bond portfolios at all? Or, or do you think you just can't time it and, and just take the 10 year? There's different characteristics on out on the curve there. Well, I definitely do not time bond markets. However, um, for most of my career, uh, again, uh, it started in early in mid 2007. There's been talk of interest rates have to go up. Now, they proceeded to just fall and fall and fall for another 13, 14 years. But I think there are probably a lot of people who were positioned for the interest rate rising. And if you have losses in your bond portfolio, as you probably do, you can tax loss harvest those and maybe position yourself in less of a tactical place. Because if you were betting on rates rising anytime in the last 30, 40 years, it's been a losing bet. Um, and when you own short-term bonds, yes, they lose less when rates go up, but the amount at which you give up in opportunity cost of gains of being at more of a market level duration, it's pretty substantial. So when I look at something 
like today, where we sit with the fixed income market, the fact that people maybe have bond losses, this is one of those rare opportunities where you could maybe without any tax implications, get a bit of a redo. Um, if you were trying to predict interest rates, maybe get to a portfolio where either A, you're outsourcing some of that prediction. So whether that's using you know, a core bond fund that's actively managed around the aggregate bond index or you know, using a manager who extends term when, when the yield curve is steepened or extends credit risk when yield spreads are wide, yeah, this might be the time to do that. And so I know last year we actually did some changes in our own bond portfolios at PlanCorp, trying to take advantage of the fact that everyone was at a loss. And rather than trying to predict where things were going, you know, there's a lot of new fixed income product out there that allows managers the type of flexibility that isn't so much market timing, but it's it's just math. Um, it's just simple quantitative data. And so that introduced a really nice opportunity for us to reconfigure portfolios, align with some of the latest research, and most importantly, take advantage of all the great product that has come to market in the last decade. When when we talk about the cash, you know, the cash rates and just thinking about how do you manage cash for a while, you didn't have to care. You know, you weren't getting any in your bank account. It didn't really matter. Um, but now when you think about, hey, you could get one week durations at 470, call it, um, versus the cash, you actually have to get, I mean, I myself, I'm starting to think about how much do I have in my checking account versus how much am I spending? How do I move it back and forth to now that you could get almost 5%? Next week, you get 5% with one week duration. Um, what are you, are, how much do you all suggest people keep in cash? How do you suggest managing around that? Um, are, are you, do you find that people are doing that optimization as, as well as they should be? I think it's a real opportunity. And if you have not evaluated your cash, and I don't mean the cash that's sitting in your portfolio, I mean the cash that's at your bank account, you know, your your cash reserve, your emergency fund, your maybe not so much checking, but just the extra cash that you keep on hand that is at some level that helps you sleep at night and make sure that you don't uh, have any mismatches with with cash flow on a regular basis. That cash we're being pretty active with. So as I mentioned earlier, the three-month yield, actually today, I think it's at 4.56. Now, you compare that to an online bank where maybe you're getting high threes or mid three percents, it can make a lot of sense to either go to Treasury Direct and buy three-month Treasury bills. Um, again, with the idea that the yield landscape may change, and it may be that at some point, you're better off just keeping it in an online bank. And if you're keeping it a brick and mortar bank, you're definitely leaving money on the table. So I think we always try to nudge people to some of the online banks who can pay higher yields. I also think if you have more cash than what is under the FDIC limit, there are vehicles like federally insured cash accounts where you can get FDIC insurance up to $25 million in some instances. And It'll basically be one account that spreads it across banks with the highest yielding rates. You get a single 1099 and you get all the FDIC insurance of the different partner banks. And, and that's another interesting way where you can earn a little bit more. I think with cash rates being higher, though, that has pretty big implications for the markets. Um, whatever the risk-free rate is, is really the hurdle that people, whether you're a business owner making capital investments or you're running a fund trying to choose which asset class to to allocate towards, the bar is higher now. Um, and so I think it's really important to be aware of those different scenarios. And, and for anyone at the personal level managing their own cash, you know, earning something less than 1% is completely unacceptable today. Um, so you, you really ought to be a little more active, whether it's moving money to an online banking account, whether it's buying short-term treasuries, or you know, like I said, a federally insured cash account is a special vehicle when you need more than the traditional FDIC insurance limits. It is definitely harder than it should be. I'll tell you that from my personal experience um, that, you know, but now maybe you're just not, I haven't set it up exactly properly. I'm sure I have more to do to make it simpler, but uh, it's not as easy as it should be. Let's talk about how you put it all together. Um, this sort of the famous portfolio was the 60-40 portfolio. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, Professor Siegel has said it's sort of 75-25 is the new 60-40 because of some subdued expectations he sees in the bond market, like your response to that. And and we can talk a little bit about the relation between stocks and bonds, how it all comes together. But but give us your, your big take. 
Well, uh, so I always think of the 60-40 as shorthand for long-term strategic asset allocation. So I think as I talk about this, it's important to think of it on that front because I don't necessarily disagree with Professor Siegel in that you might need to be a 75-25 split between stocks and bonds in order to get that 60-40 return that you are used to historically. And honestly, because yields are higher, I don't even blame the bond portion of the portfolio. I somewhat blame the U.S. stock portion of the portfolio where valuations are pretty high. And when valuations are high, the probability of trailing historical averages goes up quite a bit. Um, And you look at non-U.S. stocks, valuations are pretty low. And gosh, for the first time, since before the the financial crisis, we might see international stocks outperform the U.S. And so when I look at the 60-40, it had a horrific year last year. But as I mentioned at the top of the show, all allocations had a horrific year. And I don't think that one bad year means that something that has, it's hard not to say always work. You know, you more want to focus in portfolio construction, less on what's working right now, and more on what has always historically seemed to work. And I think even though it's obvious, it's, it was just one year, um, the 60-40 portfolio has had worse years in the past. Um, I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think this was like the sixth or seventh worst year for the 60-40. Uh, but you look at it going forward when it has a down year, you look at the next 12 months, the next three years, the next five years, the 60-40 has done great. I, I, I do think excuse me, it's done great following a a down year. So when people ask, is the 60-40 dead? I don't think that long-term strategic asset allocation is dead. Uh, Are expected returns perhaps lower for the 60-40 in the next 10 years than their historical averages? Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. The question is, what do you need to do about it? And that's nuanced. It's not black and white. You could argue you don't need to do anything about it if your time horizon's longer than 10 years. Because if you look at the rolling real returns over 30-year periods, they usually tend to be pretty tight to the average. Now, not everybody feels like they have a 30-year period, either because they're going to retire in sooner than 30 years, or they think they're going to pass away in sooner than 30 years. But I generally feel like people underestimate their time horizon by at least half. Um, I think, you know, most people, whatever you think your time horizon is, you can probably double it because even if you're not quite to retirement, it's not like you're withdrawing your entire portfolio the day you retire. And similarly, if you are, even if you're 75 years old, your time horizon, a lot of your portfolio is going to your heirs. And so the time horizon of your portfolio is probably extending beyond your own lifetime. And so I think Remembering that when you think about the 60-40, maybe you don't need to do anything because it's going to have lower returns in the next 10 years. I do know that a lot of people feel the allure of alternative investments, which I don't see as being inherently bad. I just think it's really hard to have appropriate expectations for alternatives. So typically, uh, when you're adding something to a portfolio, you do it for return enhancement or diversification and, and, and maybe income I'll throw in as a third there's a really strong case for adding alternatives um, to a portfolio for diversification purposes in my mind. The problem with that, in my experience of working with families and institutions, individuals, is that people don't like diversification. You know, they only want to own the winners. Being well diversified means that by definition, you own everything, which means you have to own the losers. And I have been defending something like international stocks for the past decade, which have, yes, trailed the S&P 500, but they have helped diversify the portfolio. So if people, if, if you've ever looked at your portfolio and been really frustrated by something as elementary as international stocks, I don't know. I think you're going to be disappointed by how alternatives perform. Yeah. Now, if, if you're adding alternatives because there's return enhancement, look, I can see that too. It's just the degree of uncertainty is pretty high. And the way that I always talk about it is if the FDA is seeking to approve a drug, they're going to try to not approve drugs. They're trying to you know, minimize the negative health side effects versus the net benefits to the overall population. And if you worry about those negative side effects, you may fail to approve a drug that's actually beneficial to the whole population. Whereas if you were only worried about the benefit and you ignore the side effects, well, you might put something out there in the public that's ultimately bad. And from a portfolio construction perspective, I am always going to be 
more concerned with implementing a bad idea than missing out on a good one. And at the beginning of our conversation, when I talked about my role as, as chief investment officer, we oversee around $6 billion for clients across the country. And a lot of times my role is to say no 10,000 times to every one thing I say yes to. And I think it's just as much knowing what to keep out of the portfolio as it is what to keep in. Tying this all back to the 60-40 portfolio, traditional asset classes like stocks and bonds, cash, real estate, yeah, we know with a pretty high degree of certainty, you never know anything with 100% certainty, but you know with a high degree of certainty what a range of outcomes might look like. I think that that range of outcomes is trending lower than historical averages for the next 10 years, but that doesn't mean it's broken. And if your time horizon's longer than 10 years, maybe it doesn't even matter. Plus, I think there are strategies that you can add around the edges, maybe to add some incremental returns if you want to go beyond just, say, indexing in a 60-40 portfolio. Yeah, you hit on a lot of key themes on diversification. A lot of people have called it diversification. You're buying all these losers, uh, particularly if it hasn't been S&P 500 or growth. You know, it's all anything not that for the last 15 years before last year uh, was diversification. And, you know, in, in, in what's happened recently, now this inflation being a key problem, how, do you see that as something that you're worried about? Do you want to get more things to help solve that issue? Do you think inflation is a a longer for higher problem? Or uh, Siegel's been out there saying, hey, inflation's dead, it's no longer an issue. But what what's your sense of inflation risks, how you try to solve for that? Well, the hardest thing is just measuring inflation and getting everybody to agree that the measurement is fair. I think perhaps more so than ever in history, that your inflation versus my inflation versus any of the listeners' inflation, the experience is completely different person to person. Um, you know, I, I have a house that's locked in in a mortgage at 2.5% on a fixed year, 30 year. And, you know, I don't think housing is expensive at all. But if you have to rent today or buy a new home, you think housing prices are astronomical. Uh, my wife and I are in the car market. That is insane right now. And so it's all hitting us differently. When I think of it from a portfolio perspective, I am a believer that stocks are always the best long-term inflation hedge. And if you look at the earnings and dividend growth of something like the S&P 500, I think you know they're each at 5% and inflation's averaged 3%. And when you compound that difference over a long period of time, you're good on the inflation front. I do think that last year, a little bit more so than right now, you had people rushing out to buy something like TIPS, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, which to me sort of struck me like buying homeowners insurance while your roof is on fire. Um, you are going to pay a premium rate when inflation expectations are high and when actual prints are surprising to the upside. Where does inflation go from here? Like I said, it's very personal, but the Federal Reserve seems pretty determined to squash it out. Um, and I'm in a probably very narrow minority that thinks that the terminal rate for the Fed is probably 6% as opposed to 5 wow. Um, I just look at the range of outcomes. I, I was actually at, um, Jim Bullard did something at the CFA Society of St. Louis. Jim Bullard's the St. Louis Fed president. And kind of looking at the more generous Taylor rule type projection um, for policy and the less generous type rule, there's a pretty wide range of outcomes between, say, like five and upper 6% for the Fed funds rate. Look, I hope that that all doesn't materialize. I hope it's what the market thinks. That would be a lot easier. But when I look at a portfolio, I think, okay, I do think long-term inflation will come closer to its long-term average. How long will that take? I'm not sure. But I do, in financial planning, tend to set future expectations around real returns. Because the whole goal of investing really is to outpace inflation without taking unnecessary risk. I mean, it, that's just a it's general first principle level, what you're trying to accomplish. And when I look at global equities, the real return long term is like 6.8 something percent. We'll call it 6.9%. To, to keep it round numbers. Now, some of the numbers in your book, Jeremy, are longer term, and so you might actually derive a, a slightly it's different the number exact if I had to number. guess. It's the exact number in the 200 years. Oh, I did. Years, well, I'm a good student. Uh, like I go. said, I've read the book before, and and I'm, I'm in the midst of reading the newest edition, actually, which is wonderful. Um, and you're going to be on my podcast. I might as well let all the listeners know at the end of March, so we'll dive into that even more deeply at thelongtermainvestor.com. And so... 
Yeah, when I look at real returns on stocks, you're talking about 6.9%. Bonds have been about 1% above inflation. Do I need an explicit inflation hedge knowing that? I don't really think so. Um, Again, I mentioned with fixed income, the product offerings out there that are not active in the sense that people are making giant rate predictions in the portfolio, but they're active in the sense that they take what market prices are showing them and try to dial up and down different types of risk in response to that. I think that can help on the bond side cover that premium, uh, cover that spread that you need to get that real percent over uh, 1% over time. With tips, here's the thing is, I think tips are a great instrument um, in two instances. I think if you were buying individual tips, like directly from the treasury to hedge specific cash flow needs, that is a perfect inflation hedge. If you were buying a tips fund, I think even if you're not buying it as an inflation hedge, but you're buying it as a diversifier in the fixed income portfolio, gosh, I love that. But I just talked about how some people don't like basic diversification. So it's hard to stomach when something looks different than everything else. And tips funds are very volatile um, because they're not really driven by inflation the way that people think they are. They're driven by changes in expectations of inflation. And then that means that there is a very, very human element. And us humans, we're a little bit fickle. Uh, We're kind of this raw bunch of emotions. And so I do like, you know, the idea of inflation hedging using stocks. I do like the idea of inflation hedging for very specific uh, liabilities in the future. But beyond that, I don't don't have a lot of explicit inflation hedging needs uh, beyond that for most portfolios. We certainly agree fully and often show the same exact data on dividend growth being about 2% of ahead of long-term inflation. Um, so that is, uh, we're seeing the same tune on that issue that stocks are the best long-term inflation hedge, stocks for long run, uh, that was with the key risk to bonds. Fully agree. We're talking with Peter Lazaroff, CIO of PlanCorp, author of Making Money Simple. Um, Peter, one of the things that we talk about, and, and you just talked about this for tips a little bit, and I'm curious uh, if you focus on this. It's part of the new edition of Stocks for Long Run. And the chapter on bonds, we actually talk a lot. We have a new chapter on the lower for longer segment for bond yields. And we show a chart on the correlation between stocks and bonds. And that bonds became like the hedge asset of choice for the last three decades. In the 70s and 80s, high inflation they went down together. Um, and there's some studies from the Fed saying, Richard Clarido did a piece saying maybe 300 basis points of yield shift can just be explained by the changing correlation from a positive to a negative correlation. Because what do you know about insurance? You're willing to pay up for insurance. And so if you're willing to pay up for the bond insurance because it acts as the perfect diversifier for stocks, hey, you'll accept a much lower return. Now, the question is, is the pain of 2022 stick with people and sort of short term that correlation sign keeps rates a little bit higher? But do you think of bonds as that insurance asset in that 60-40 construct? What do you think about that argument? I still am thinking of it in a longer term perspective. You know, in, in any one year, even five year period, the ability of correlations uh, to to rise is entirely possible. But I do still look at the bond portfolio and, and we're kind of talking in broad strokes here. So, but ultimately, I do still look at it as the insurance piece. Um, I think it would play that role better as interest rates are higher. Uh, my hope is that this is a new era where we don't go back down to zero interest rates. Um, I think when the lower interest rates are, you are going to see that do some things to to correlations. This past year, they're high because there was a big move. Yeah. But ultimately, yeah, I'm still seeing it as the insurance piece in that respect. Ultimately, though, I don't think, though, that it has to only be that because I think for the last several decades, we haven't looked to fixed income to drive any actual return, whereas maybe we get back to a place where it is a touch more than insurance, not a lot more, but you know, again, can we clear, can we, can we hurdle inflation by a percentage point? If so, I think you can have some really nice outcomes, uh, particularly if, if you're dedicated to your financial plan. 
We, we talked. Uh, you mentioned early in the conversation the when we started talking about the, the the returns that you could expect, and so the U.S. being maybe a headwind, partly because you had these tech companies driving the markets higher, driving multiples higher, international being cheaper. How do you think about that global diversification question and and where you like, do you think now, you know, it's been a painful time, international is sort of like the value sector of the world. How is is value going to have a return, a resurgence, or is it going to be quick moves for growth to come right back and to be the leaders again? Well, I will never pretend to know if the value premium will stay positive. I expect it to. And and when I say the value premium, the idea that, you know, if you pay a lower price for any fundamental, whether that's for earnings or for cash flow or for book value or for dividends, ultimately, if you pay a lower price, you expect that you're going to have a better return for than you would have paying a higher price. And as we saw going into last year, the relative expensiveness of value of growth stocks versus value stocks, growth just being expensive stocks, maybe we should say versus expensive versus cheap. Um, I think really only the tech bubble was the only comparable. And as a result, value did really, really well. Is that because the interest rate environment? Yeah, maybe um, when interest rates are higher, current cash flows are more valuable than future cash flows. And in the US, I would say that the the narrative that you pointed out with the tech companies is a valid one. Ultimately, you are seeing some behavior changes in technology companies. Um, just kind of like an anecdote. If you think about Uber, I mean, Uber used to be definitively cheaper than taking a taxi cab. Now, why was that? Well, the people investing in Uber could earn 0% in a risk-free rate, or they could invest in a high growth asset that has future profits that when interest rates are zero, you know, when you do a discounting back to a present value, it's it's much higher. Well, interest rates have gone up. Uh, that means that current profits are more valuable than future profits. And now it costs a ton of money to take an Uber. And I think that's a good anecdote just to kind of understand the shifting in behaviors of some of these growth stocks that had a bad year. Could that change leadership um, and be something that's, you know, more longer lasting? Sure, I, I think it could. I have no idea. The probability would say that if you're buying cheap stocks over long periods of time, that on average, that those are going to outperform paying for expensive stocks. I think in the international market, particularly, you'll see this be strong. And, and when I see lower um, return expectations for US markets, I think in those periods, historically, you have seen value companies do quite well to growth. Does that mean it'll happen again? No, but there are a lot of pieces there that line it up to make it seem so. And and I, in my own portfolio, I'm pretty tilted towards towards value in and of itself. And why do I do that? I mostly do it because I got a really long time horizon. And the probabilities, you, you can't really find much in 20-year rolling periods where buying cheap is isn't better than buying expensive. And, and I think that's that intuitive logic really holds strong. And financial theory, it tends to work really well in the long run. The problem is that, you know, days feel like weeks, weeks feel like years. I mean, year to year feel it's an eternity to get to the long term. So I'm really thinking, uh, you know, to your point, I think we're probably at a place where, yes, it's been nice to to see that for someone like me who has a lot of clients and strategies to emphasize relative cheapness um, for me personally, but then also just where current valuations are, expensive stocks are still really expensive and cheap stocks are still pretty darn cheap. Um, maybe that that disparity is less so than a year ago, but it's still very noticeable when you're looking at it in a historical context. Yeah, people get it that bonds, hey, the bond yield is like what I return, you know, and it, there's a big correlation between lower bond yields mean lower returns in uh, growth. You know, it, it, we've had 15 years where just growth dominated by so much valuations didn't seem to matter. Um, something we call the growth trap, uh, people, growth is not return. You know, what you pay matters a lot. Uh, the earnings yields matter a lot to these returns um, and sort of, you know, you could get, you look at the S&P at 18 times earnings, you get a lot of the international value portfolios, 10 points lower at eight, you know, instead of a 5% earnings yield, you get a 12% earnings yield. I mean, I, I see that in my day to day a lot. 
but people have been afraid. You know, you got to go to Europe to buy some of this, and that is, you know, it's risky. It's there's a war, all sorts of issues. Uh, we have a few minutes left. Um, anything on making money simple that you want to talk about? Anything that we didn't cover from your book and 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 where people can go uh, to get a copy? Sure. Well, as we've mentioned a few times, if you go to peterlazaroff.com slash free book, I have, um, I think I have 200, 250 copies here that I'm willing to give out to the listeners. So peterlazaroff.com slash free book. The things that we didn't talk about today, we are pretty investment heavy that the book focuses on is is really the the basic steps of getting a plan in place Um, because financial success is not magic. It's mostly a matter of engineering. And the system that it's explained in the book is literally the same worksheets that me and my wife use every year. Um, it's the same worksheets that I give to, to prospective clients and clients and families and friends, the same worksheets that I've used my entire life. It's really not rocket science. Um, it's probably closer to like mowing the lawn. You know, I used to mow my lawn and I didn't exactly kill the grass, but that's not saying that it was as beautiful and healthy as it could be. And so I think kind of getting some of those basic steps and then, you know, everything from building a savings plan, automating it, how to invest. And to be clear, there's no one right portfolio for everybody. So how to invest is a pretty broad thing. And then just tackling some of those one-time issues, uh, the right type of insurance, buying a house, estate planning, hiring an advisor, even, you know, these are decisions that you don't make enough to get regular feedback to know if you're doing it right or not. So my hope is it's a pretty short read given how much is covered, but my hope is that you can read it, get your whole financial house in order and keep it that way forever. Well, that's been a very good conversation. I appreciate you offering our listeners a a free book and uh, uh, interesting to hear your view on where the Fed is going to be. Mr. Bullard has been, President Bullard has been our most frequent Fed president on Behind the Markets. uh, So we we try to convince him otherwise. Um, He moves with the flow sometimes um, and we try to tell him, hey, inflation's over, but, uh, you know, they're sticking with the tune. But very good conversation, Peter. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, again, we've been thanking Peter Lazarus, CIO of PlanCore. Thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Have a great one, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.